Well, you might think it's a little bit odd for us to look at Proverbs 31, the excellent wife chapter of Proverbs. But I'm going to give you a compelling reason that we're doing this in a moment. But we are going to look at this chapter on the excellent wife, and while you're finding it, I'm just going to read it to you. I'll begin in verse 10. The, the, The real poem here begins in verse 10. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. He makes, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But the woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. In a moment, I'll give you a compelling reason why we need to study this chapter. But there have been a lot of books written on Proverbs 31, uh, particularly those 22 verses we just read. Some are good, some are not so good. Um, But rather than listing all the titles for you, let me tell you about the covers to these books and see if you see a pattern emerging. On these covers, uh, one has a young woman running through a flowery meadow with a silk scarf trailing in the breeze behind her. Another has some beautiful pink tulips lying in a rustic wooden table next to a cup of coffee that has a little steam coming off of it. Another has a gorgeous purple flower on top of a sheet of music. I have no idea what that has to do with Proverbs 31. Another has a big yellow sunflower on a wispy baby blue background. Now, I told this to the ladies. And at the women's retreat, and they were getting a tear in their eye. You guys are getting ready to throw up. You're like, what? I have to read this. Another has butterflies kind of flying across the cover. Another has a woman sitting in a meadow, writing thoughtfully in a journal. I asked the ladies, uh, how many of you have ever sat in a meadow writing in a journal? Nobody had. It's not real. I saw themes, themes of flowers and the color pink and lavender. Those were big, lots of sunshine, all that you could expect and hope for on the cover of a book meant to attract a woman to read it. But here's the irony about those covers and the compelling reason I'm giving for looking at this chapter with you. Proverbs 31, 10 through 31 was written for men. It was written first and foremost for men. Proverbs chapter 1, context of the whole book, beginning in verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words and insight. Proverbs 1 verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Then we get to Proverbs 31 itself. Solomon includes instruction from a woman about women to a man. 31 verse 1, the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. So the reason this is important for us is that Proverbs 31 is really the story of a young king or a king-to-be named Lemuel. Now, Jewish legend and tradition identifies Lemuel as Solomon himself, the author of Proverbs. If this is the case, then this is the instruction of his mother, Bathsheba. I wish I could take time to address this. There is the issue that Solomon had hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines. Um, There were lots of good reasons for this. Not all of them are good. Not all of them are bad. 
Um, many of his wives were simply to cement political alliances, uh, which kept peace in the ancient Near East for uh, 40 years. So Solomon's life in no way endorses polygamy at all. But like most kings with multiple wives in the ancient Near East, it's very likely that he had what Solomon himself called the wife of his youth, his first and his greatest and truest love. I personally lean toward Lemuel being Solomon. And this is instruction for Bathsheba, and I want to give you a couple of reasons for this. First of all, Solomon owed a great debt to Bathsheba, and he revered her, he respected her, he honored her. When his brother Adonijah tried to wrongly take the throne before he could become king, Bathsheba saved the day. She went to the ailing old King David, uh, Solomon's father, and saved that day. When Solomon first took the throne, Adonijah tried to use Bathsheba unwittingly against him to, to get him out of the throne. She was unaware that she was being used. But listen to how Solomon treated her when she comes to see him. In 1 Kings 2, verse 19, so Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah, and she was being tricked at the time, and and it worked out. But listen to how he treats her. And the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. So he owed her a great debt. And he respected her. He revered her. It's another reason I think this is Solomon. In the Hebrew Bible, as the ancient Jews ordered the books of the Old Testament, you have Proverbs, Ruth, then Song of Solomon. So you have Proverbs 31, immediately followed by two examples, Ruth, and I believe Solomon's wife, probably his first wife, the wife of his youth, the Shulamite maiden of Song of Solomon. So that just makes sense. It goes together I think that what Solomon's doing here is he's, he's deflecting attention from himself. He uses the name Lemuel. We don't know what, that, what that's about. But he's deflecting attention from himself, and that, there is a precedent for that in Scripture. Um, the Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians 12, when he's clearly speaking of himself, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. And so he speaks of this vision of heaven, but it's so great and wondrous that he doesn't use his own name. And so there is precedent for this. But whether it's Bathsheba's instruction or not doesn't make any difference. It is the instruction of a queen. It's the instruction of a queen, the wife of a king, to her young son who either is the king or soon will be a king. This is really important for us to understand because Lemuel will have great responsibility. In fact, I I think it's interesting that the book of Proverbs addresses what goes on in the life of a king 33 times. That's more than one time per chapter. And you might say, well, I'm not a king. Well, over your own domain and over your own life, you really are. And so those instructions and those uh, concepts for a king apply to us as men. But these passages about the kings in Proverbs emphasize the immense duty and the weight and the obligation that it brings Uh, Solomon himself says that there are certain burdens and worries that really only a king can understand fully. Uh, Proverbs 25, verse 3, As the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. There are certain things we just don't understand about uh, a leader. And that's true in your own family. There are certain things your wife and your children will never understand about what it means to be a man. That's just the way it is. So Lemuel begins the the chapter with the sobriety and the seriousness of being a king, of being a leader, that he must elevate himself significantly above the normal man. Verse 2, she calls him to constantly evaluate his actions. Three times, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? A self-evaluation. In verse 3, he's told, never let women consume your attention. I mean, history's filled with leaders who shame themselves with their unquenchable lust for women, and it, it drove them off track. Verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, she takes significant amount of time to address the issue of alcohol. And she says, it is not for kings to drink wine, meaning you've got to be clear-headed all the time. You're a leader. You can't be the guy who's staggering around and needs others to lead you. In verses 8 and 9, she says, your, your job is to defend the defenseless and to give righteous judgments. And so verses 1 through 9 is a message all in itself, just at the, 
the sobriety and the seriousness of being the leader, of being a king, of being a, a, a man with responsibility. Well, we know from Solomon's life that he ignored some of her advice and he heeded some of her advice, pretty much like your children will do. That's just, that's just the way he was. That's the way our kids are. But her point is, to this end, the, the king has to elevate himself and his effectiveness by marrying a woman of virtue, by marrying a woman who fears the Lord and who will serve him well. And a quick reading of these 22 verses show that this is describing the wife of a nobleman, the wife of somebody who has responsibility, a wife whose husband has authority. And so Lemuel writes what his mother told him. He writes it in a memorable way for future generations. And he does this in two ways. First of all, this poem from verse 10 on is an acrostic, like many other poems in the Old Testament, 22 verses, each beginning with the consecutive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. But to make it even more memorable, he structures it in a very typical Hebrew literary structure. If you were at BTI on Tuesday night, you understand this. He used a chiastic structure. It's a, it's a type of structure where the middle portion is the most important. It's the crux. It's the center. It's the focus. It's the bullseye. And everything else before and after are a mirror image of each other. And so if you were outlining this, you would have A, A, B, B, C, C, D in the middle as the most important thing. And so he puts these two structures together. One of the reasons I believe in the inerrancy and the perfection of Scripture because no man can write a poem that has simultaneously two structures that are this perfect. And what is it that's in the middle? What's the most important literary feature of this poem that tells us what it's really about? The middle portion, and the verses, by the way, aren't inspired. The verse numbers are not inspired. What's inspired is the structure. The middle portion is verse 23. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Who's this written to? This is written first to men. And the middle portion, her husband. According to Genesis 2.18, the woman was created to be a helper fit for the man, and she will either lift up or destroy her husband. She is being led by this man, and yet he's dependent on her if he's going to be successful, if he's going to attain uh, the leadership status described in verse 23. And we really even understand this just from a secular sense. Um, I'm not a great historian, but I don't remember any single presidents of the United States. The, the great presidents always have a great wife alongside them. And that, that has been true regardless of politics, having a wife that, that makes you look good. And you guys instinctively know this, that a great wife makes a mediocre man look great and a terrible wife makes a great man look mediocre. That is just the way it is. Now you notice that the elders who sit at the gate of the town, as is spoken of in verse 23, they're involved in leading, they're involved in making judgments the gate of a town it wasn't just a little gate that went like this. The gate of a town often had rooms. It was, a, uh, it, it was a, a little complex of rooms where judgments were made and where meetings were held. It was sort of a town hall, which happened to be at the city gates. And so if he's going to be successful and, and uh, be that man who is a leader, then he has to have a wife who is going to help with that. The illustration for the young king is that you might be a leader by birthright, but you have to be a leader by earned respect also. And without an excellent wife, you'll never gain that status. And we all know this. We've, you, you've experienced this in your own life, in, in work settings, watching the news. It's possible for a leader to lose his people's confidence so much that it becomes impossible to lead effectively. And so you might be the leader in name, but if you've lost the confidence of your people, you can ask coaches, CEOs, pastors, politicians. Once you lose the confidence of most of those under you, then you're done. And so this woman is teaching her son, don't go down that road. You're the king or you're going to be the king. The woman you marry will make all the difference in the world as to whether you'll be successful or not. So Lemuel is telling him to find a woman who has the potential to do all these things, to find a woman who understands that a man has a calling and a duty on his life that goes beyond the home, that God has a path for him, that she is to support and to bolster at all costs, um, that, he, uh, that he has a job 
Um, and the, as the song goes, she is to be the wind beneath his wings and not the weight beneath his wings. There's a lot of debate about this woman. The, the woman described here, an excellent wife. Is this an ideal woman at various stages of life or is it an ideal woman in general? I think I would be a little bit more specific. This is describing the godly woman who has been around the block. She has children and maybe grandchildren. Um, she's the wife of a nobleman. We know this from verse 23 of some sort. So she has some servants. We know that from uh, verse 15. She has uh, accumulated some wealth. They've been around for a while. She's been forming and building her family culture for some years now. Um, in this culture, she probably has children that span an entire generation. So it's very feasible to have children and grandchildren who are the same age. That, that was normal. I think to, to summarize who this woman is, Lemuel's mother is telling him, if you want to reach your full potential, look into the future. This is the woman, this is who she should be 30 years from now. So what we're talking about here probably is an older, experienced woman who really knows what she's doing now. All right, now you have a basic grasp of Proverbs 31 and what it's about. I want to do two things this morning. First, I want to just give you some highlights uh, of the chapter, highlights of what I taught the ladies at the women's retreat. Um, obviously, I can't replicate five hours of teaching in the next 40 minutes or so. So I'm just going to give you some touch points. And the second thing, really the, the whole point of this morning that I want to do is I want from what Lemuel's mother's telling him about what kind of wife to have, we can actually extract some principles as to what kind of man is worthy of this wife. What kind of man needs this type of wife? And that's where our, our focus really will be. But first, I want to just give you some, some highlights of the chapter. I taught the ladies uh, the passage using the chiastic structure that it forms. We started from verse 23 and we worked our way outward over the course of five sessions. I covered every major area of godliness in women and I hit especially hard godliness as a wife. You're welcome. You can send me thank you notes later. I don't have time to develop that chiastic structure. It's complex, and, and I wish I could, but I'm just going to give you some high points going straight through. Um, and just a little note here for you guys who either don't have wives or maybe at this stage you don't have a wife who is aspiring to be this Proverbs 31 woman, and that, that can be discouraging. I want to encourage you, don't let that discourage you. Whether you don't have a wife or whether maybe your wife hasn't uh, grown enough to desire this yet, um, just let it be a means to pray for your wife, either present or future, and maybe a, a way to positively inspire her to have a little more purpose. What I have noticed is that men who step up to be, if I can put it this way, a Proverbs 31 man, tend to have their wives inspired to follow them. Maybe they just need something to follow. So don't let that be discouraging to you if you're not in a situation uh, where you think your wife is just aggressively pursuing this. That's okay. We'll be patient with that. Just follow along with me. I'm not going to read these verses again, maybe a couple of them, but I just want to go point by point through each of the verses and just give you a couple of highlights. Um, verse 10, an excellent wife. It's just a word that means noble or strong. It's very interesting to me. It's the exact same word used in the book of Ruth, both of Ruth and of Boaz. It means somebody with noble character, with, with strength. And it elevates the wife's stature as important and as vital, which in, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, uh, Judaism was the only group of people on earth who were doing that. Uh, God's law concerning men and women is totally unique because he made man and woman in his image. Verse 11 the heart of a husband trusts in her. There's a, there's a trusting relationship. He'll have no lack of gain. It implies that she manages the family and, and the family business, the family money. Uh, I'll do more on this in a moment, but he can trust her with the funds that he's earned. He's a nobleman. He doesn't have time to come home and balance the checkbook. He's doing other things. Verse 12 she does him good and not harm. She doesn't use her husband for her own ends. There's, she's there for him. She's here, there to be a helper that God intended her to be. Um, I'm always concerned when a couple gets married and the woman's view, the bride-to-be, her view is that I'm marrying this guy so he can make all my dreams come true. I can say this in a group of men. No, you're getting married so she can make all your dreams come true. 
not just dreams about family and marriage, but, but the things that the Lord has laid before you to do that. Um, I, when, whenever a young lady is describing to me how princess fairy tale castle-like their marriage is going to be, no, it's not. There's going to be work involved. There's going to be difficulties. There's going to be um, a, a readjusting of your priorities that you're getting married in order to propel the success of your husband. That that is a big part of that. And when a woman doesn't understand that, it creates friction. When she does understand it, it creates joy. It really does. So she, she's not using her husband for her own ends. Verse 13, she may be the wife of a nobleman, but she gets her hands dirty. She works with willing hands. And I told the ladies this, that that's a, that's a, a rhetorical device where it's as if your hand is saying, I'm willing, I'd like to work. And it's just a way to remember that, that my hands are willing. And that a, a godly woman says, hands, don't be lazy, be willing. Okay, and so that's just a, an easy way to remember that. Verse 14, she's creative, she's imaginative. She's not just going through the motions, but she's, she's treating her home like the most important thing in the world. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She's not one of the women who serves the same three meals three, time, three and a third times uh, every, every week and just forever. She's creative and she's trying to infuse joy and, and uh, difference in her home. Verse 15, she rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. Portions for her maidens. She may have servant girls no older than her own daughters. And so she's treating them well. Now, it's interesting, she gives them portions for her maidens. It's a word that also means instructions. And so what does this mean? It means she's well organized. She's ordered. She has her day lined out. Now, by the way, and the ladies were happy to hear this, when it says she rises while it is yet night, that's not a commentary that getting up early is more godly than getting up later. Um, It's a commentary that she has her day ordered. And I, I actually read this in a book that a woman takes this so literally that she feels guilty if she's up after 5 a.m. every day. That's called legalism. The principle is have your day ordered. It doesn't matter how you do that. She happens to get up early to do this because you didn't have electric lights. And so it's just easier to get up early and be ready to go when the sun comes up. Verse 16, she considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. This is not a biblical stamp of approval on a woman having a self-fulfilling, self-focused career outside the home. This is not what this is. This is not a woman pursuing, pursuing their career apart from her husband. This is not permission to disregard Titus 2, verse 5, that the wife of children at home is to be working at home. Remember verse 11, the heart of her husband trusts in her, he will have no lack of gain. Verse 16 is a woman taking what her husband has earned and reinvesting it. She's using it wisely and she's multiplying his efforts. She's, she's smart financially. She's using the brain that God gave her and she's taking what God has supplied to her um, through her husband and saying, let's use this really well. Let's reinvest it. Let's plant it in a vineyard. Let's buy a piece of land with it. And she's, she's making the family more and more um, prosperous this way. It's not her hobby. It's not her career. This somehow is completely separated from her family. It, it has to do with her family. And it's an integrated action together. Verse 17 She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. Now, no doubt she's very feminine. Later verses are going to show this, but she isn't afraid to work either. She's not overly foofy. She can pick stuff up. She can do things. My little little tiny wife, five foot nothing, weighs about 11 pounds soaking wet. I see her carrying stuff on her shoulder. How are you doing that? Because she she wants to do, use her body to the very best of her ability to be strong. Verse 18 I love this verse. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. Perceives, it's a word that means savors or tastes or take time to enjoy. The fruit of her work is good and she takes time to enjoy that. that. What does that mean? It means she's taking time with her family. Now, another one that the ladies were happy to hear me talk about, her lamp does not go out at night. It doesn't mean that she stays up really late working. Because if we're going to misinterpret that, 
along with misinterpreting that she rises while it's yet night, now Proverbs 31 is saying, don't get any sleep. You know, that if you're really godly, you only get three and a half hours of sleep a night. This is not what this is saying. I talked about this on Tuesday night at, at Bible Training Institute. But the reason that verse 19, I'm sorry, verse 18 is so often misinterpreted is because the genre of literature as Hebrew poetry isn't taken into consideration. If you've been at BTI, you know what the number one feature of Hebrew poetry is, is parallelism. That one half of a saying interprets the other half. Sometimes there's synonymous parallelism, meaning they're the same. Sometimes they are contrasting parallelism, meaning that they're different. And there's other varieties as well. But in this case, this is synonymous parallelism. Now, what that means is that in verse 18, she perceives that her merchandise is profitable. What does this mean? She's savoring it. She's enjoying it. It means she has made time to sit down and to be with her family, to go out in the fields or out in the mountains or whatever with her family. We interpret the second half of the verse synonymously, and her lamp does not go out at night. If we say that that means that she stays up super late working, we've missed the point. She's taking time with her family, first verse, because she has used her time well, second half of the verse, her lamp does not go out at night. This is so ridiculously simple. Her lamp does not go out at night because she used her time well enough to fill the lamps with oil before it was time to be with her family. She didn't say, I'm sorry guys, I don't have time to be with you, I gotta keep on filling the lamps. Her lamp doesn't go out because she was using her time well. She's already filled them. She's ahead of the game. Now she can enjoy herself. Verse 19, she puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. That's the two pieces of a, of a cloth or a thread-making mechanism. In this society, the ability to make thread and cloth was valued. It was useful. And just like today, it was something that was viewed as enjoyable. It was very much a, a satisfying work to do. It was very much a hobby. But her hobby, because she uses her time so well, has a greater purpose. She's fulfilled her responsibilities to her family. And now what she just made in verse 19, verse 20, she opens her hands to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. How? The things she made in verse 19. She has this leftover. Hey, you need this. I'll give it to you. I just made this. Verse 21 She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She's taking care of her home. Scarlet is either a color or a word that means double cloth. In other words, warm clothing. Either way, she's trusting the Lord and she's prepared. She does both. Verse 22, she makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. I won't bore you with the exegetical reasons, but bed coverings, I think there's a really good case for that simply just being covering. There's only one other time that verse, that word is used in the whole Old Testament, and that's in Proverbs chapter 7, and it talks about a covering for a couch. That doesn't make it mean that every time that word has to mean covering. Remember synonymous parallelism? What's the second half of the verse say? Her clothing is fine linen and purple. So what's the bed covering? I would say it's just a covering. It's some sort of clothing, whatever that is, whether it's a, a, a shawl or a wrap or a jacket of some sort. But she takes care of herself. She doesn't let it be a sign of godliness, supposedly, that she's going to look as horrible as possible. Um, There's an entire subculture of Christian women who say, I'm so busy as a wife and a mother that I look horrible and I'm proud of it. There's nothing godly about that. Like John MacArthur said once, ladies, it's okay to wear makeup, please. I'll never forget that. (laughs) Men were cheering and and, uh, heard that. Oh, she wears fine linen. What is that? That's linen she imported from Egypt. That she went online to Amazon and said, yes, I'm worth it. Bing, bye. Purple. That's purple cloth imported from the north from Sidon and Tyre, the area of Phoenicia. Verse 23, point of the whole chapter. We'll come back to this. Verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Again, she's using her husband's earnings to multiply his efforts, probably the leftovers from verses 19 and 20, the things that she's making. Verse 25, strength and dignity are her clothing and she laughs at the time to come. She's developed a genuine depth of trust in the Lord. She's a good manager of her household and she, she does both. She doesn't just pray, but she does 
It's useless to pray for things that you're not willing to do something about. You know, Lord, help me buy a new car. Great. What are you doing to save for that new car? Verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. I started teaching that verse to the ladies. You could have heard a pin drop because every one of them know that they tend toward exactly the opposite, right? That the mouth starts going before the brain has kicked in. But she teaches not only about kindness and wisdom. Why can she do that? Because she has the reputation of somebody who has lived that out. But her actual speech is characterized by kindness and wisdom. I mean, can you imagine the president of the United States with his wife next to him at some regal event and he says something dumb, which presidents do all the time. And can you imagine the the first lady going right there on national TV? Or saying, you shouldn't have said that. A godly, noble woman doesn't do that. And then verse 27, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. That's a summary of verses 13 through 19, the hard work of this woman. And then the grand finale, verses 28 through 31, the final result of a lifetime of pursuing being a godly woman. Her children rise up and call her blessed. By the way, that's not just a one-time event that moms get to look forward to and say, wow, that was fast. This is supposed to be a lifestyle of a family loving and respecting um, the mother of the family. Um, The husband praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. And then the spiritual summary of the chapter, verse 30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but the woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gate. Now to ask a woman to be this kind of wife with no context other than to obey the Lord. If you say, wife, you need to be this kind of woman. Okay, that's reasonable. She needs to obey the Lord. She needs to submit to the Lord. She needs to do that as an act of worship. There's a better way, though. The better way is to motivate her and to be a team, to be the kind of a guy who develops team. Uh, Just to give you an example, there's two ways to think about your marriage if you're married. Option one, you can be the guy who does the minimum. He goes to work, earns a paycheck, comes home, plops down in front of the TV, does a couple things on, on the house, pays the bills on time, kisses his wife and goes to bed and does the same thing the next day. I mean, you can do that. Option two, though, you can see your marriage and your family as a team effort which has objectives, which has a mission, and you work together th- toward those objectives. As an example, if you started a business and you had your wife be an integral part of this while she's still maintaining her family responsibilities, suddenly there's a sense of mission. There's a sense of togetherness. It's not that you're just living two separate lives that happen to be under the same household, under the same roof. So what kind of man motivates a woman like that? What kind of man is worthy of that? Again, if you're not married, this still indicates the kind of life you ought to live. So what we can do is look behind the scenes and see the implications of what kind of man this woman is married to. And I'd like to just, I I came up with 22 qualities. I'll do five of them. Uh, We don't have time to do 22, so I'm just going to do five qualities of the man to whom this woman is married. And this is, again, kind of looking behind the scenes here. So the first quality of a man to whom this type of woman is married is he is first an earning man. He's an earning man. E-A-R-N-I-N-G. Not just doing enough to barely make it, but doing all you can to begin to get ahead and provide that security uh, to a woman. Um, As has famously been told, when a a, a Christian man who really wasn't working very hard told his wife, well, you just need to trust the Lord, she says, I did. I asked him for a husband to provide for me, and he did. That is her trusting the Lord. But how do we see this behind the scenes? Verse 11 he will have no lack of gain. Verse 16, she's investing a little bit extra. Verse 21, she's provided what it takes to give, he's provided what it takes to give decent clothing to the children. Verse 24, he uses household uh, resources with his wife to multiply what's been made. And so there is a sense in which her job is to take what is earned and multiply it, but his job is to earn it and to bring it home in the first place. One of the reasons that we chose, for example, to homeschool our children, it's not the right or the wrong way um, to educate your kids. 
One of the reasons for us was simply a financial decision. And for us, first of all, for, for us, there's no way we were sending our kids to public school. There's a lot of reasons for that, both educational and spiritual. I've often said, if I was an atheist, I wouldn't send my kids to public school. That's just my opinion. That's not a, that's not a biblical admonition. But we did like the idea of Christian education. But by homeschooling, Sylvia has done the work of a day full of teachers and saved us to this date, by today's standards, about $650,000 that we would have paid in tuition. That is her taking what I've earned and multiplying it, in this case, just by not spending it. And so we spend a few hundred dollars a year on materials and a laptop here and there. And other than that, it's, it's not free. It is her multiplying what we do have point is that the Proverbs 31 woman is using resources that the Proverbs 31 husband is generously providing. And and this is something that I I think that, um, I don't know when this happened, but the World War II generation of men, they came home from the war and just did whatever it took. Oh, I have to work three jobs? Okay, that's what I do. I have to start a business here while working and delivering papers at three o'clock in the morning to feed my family? That's what I do. Over the next couple of generations, that work ethic somehow, I don't know where it went. To now we have a millennial generation that graduates from high school and then waits and says, somebody hand me something. I am so worthy of anything. Please give me money and opportunity instead of working for it, instead of earning it. So I think the call to, from this man behind this woman is to look for ways to earn, look for ways to save, even taking time and effort to better yourself, better your education, whatever you have to do to live up to your potential. Uh, I, I think in our culture today, very few men are doing what they're capable of if they really push themselves to do it. I mean, in our little church here, we have financial professionals in our church. Use them, get your financial house in order and pray about reaching your fullest potential to the glory of God. That, that allows a wife to do these extra things, to do the, the giving to, the, uh, to those who are less fortunate and so forth. Which brings us to the second quality. First, an earning man. Second quality, if we look behind the scenes here, is that he's a giving man. He's a giving man. Verse 20, she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. This is a family philosophy that they've agreed upon. If he's bringing home um, the, the, the paycheck, so to speak, and she's giving it away without his consent, that's going to cause problem. But she's giving it away so freely that clearly they have teamed up together to make this a family philosophy, to say we are very blessed. We've worked hard and the Lord has blessed us and we want to pass that on. I don't believe in the phrase giving back to the community because the community didn't give me anything. I do believe in giving the phrase giving back to the Lord because he gave me everything. So this isn't them giving back. This is them passing on the resources they got from the Lord to themselves onto others. On his behalf and on behalf of the family, she's giving, she's reaching out. They're reaching their community um, as law keepers who love and keep the law of God out of love for him, the Old Testament is filled with laws about caring for the poor. And so they do this. Of course, we can expand our understanding based on the revelation of the New Testament to the new covenant community of the church. In fact, I want to take a moment, if you, if you can take your Bible and just turn over for a second to 2 Corinthians 9. And I want to just take a moment to kind of walk through a couple of features of this. 2 Corinthians 9 The Apostle Paul is reminding the Corinthian church of his collection that he's taking up for the church in Jerusalem. And so he's writing them in advance of his next visit. And on a side note, 2 Corinthians 9 is one of the greatest examples of leadership in communication, communication in leadership. And he's just an absolute genius. But this really gives us a handle on what it means to be a believer in Christ and somebody who is generous with your resources. Chapter 9, verse 1, Now now it is superfluous for for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia, Achaia, that's where uh, Corinth is, has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Do you see the genius in this? He's writing to them saying, yeah, I've been bragging on you, telling everyone that when we arrive, you're going to have a bucket load of money for us. We're so thankful for your example, and everybody's talking about it. What's the church at Corinth do? 
All right, get out the wallet. We got we to gotta live up to this. And so, verse 3, but I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready as I said you would be. This guy is cornering them. Verse 4, otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated, by the way, to say nothing of you, for being so confident. Now both wallets are out, checkbooks are out, credit cards, everything. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. What's he saying? Pile the money in the foyer. Their guys are on the way with the dump truck. Get it ready. Verse 6, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This is a very simple principle of sowing and reaping. This is not the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel says that I come to God so he can give me things. That's not the gospel. But a believer in Christ who invests in kingdom issues and invests in giving, why would the Lord be generous with you when you won't be generous with others? This is the same principle as the Lord's table. Why should the Lord be really happy about you taking the Lord's table when you won't forgive somebody else? And so his simple concept here is that if you are sowing richly in others, then the Lord's going to provide for you. In fact, he goes on to talk about this. Verse 7, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. By the way, that is not permission to just not give. You give something. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. When, when uh, an individual or a couple or a family comes to me for spiritual counsel about financial difficulties, one of the first questions I always ask is, are you giving? And, and are you happy with that? Invariably, usually it's no, I'm not. And so I will give them the, the task, okay, and give a dollar, give five dollars. You've got it. You cannot reap a harvest if you don't plant a seed. It can't happen. And then, you know, the $1,000 faith promise, we won't do that. But uh, then verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So what is this? This is an attitude of just overwhelming generosity that this is how I'm going to live my life. And I'm not just hanging on to things. Um, for, for their own sake. In fact, in the previous chapter, look back at, verse, at chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. That would be the church at Philippi. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. This is historically proven that the church at Philippi, probably one of the poorest churches financially, was also the most generous church. And Paul is just saying, by the way, Macedonia is blowing you away. It's kind of what he's saying to them. Verse 3, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging, listen to this, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. When was the last time the offering plate came by and you just grabbed it and said, hang on a second, I've got more money in my other pocket. Please wait so that I can give. I'm not saying to really do that, but that's the attitude that, that the church of Philippi had. Oh, please let us contribute to this cause. So for this man in Proverbs 31, who's in front of this woman, their family dynamic has been, we want to give. We want to be generous and not stingy. In verse 15 of chapter 8, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Great, great admonition to us. A man who claims to be a man of God but doesn't have a generous spirit is not a Proverbs 31 husband. Back to Proverbs 31. There's a third quality of this man and that is that he is a respected man. He's a respected man. Now that brings us to the crux of the chapter, verse 23. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Now obviously we're not seeking 
prominence. We're not seeking recognition. And there are just a wide variety of giftings and talents. Uh, we were joking about this at the table um, this morning that some guys are upfront guys and other guys are more behind the scenes guys. Uh, years ago in ministry, I tapped a guy on the shoulder to be the, the, the man who got our worship service started, our, our, our call to worship guy and announcements guy. And he comes up on his first and turned out to be his last Sunday doing this. And he came up and the way he got our congregation's attention to call us to focus on Christ was to come up to the pulpit and go like that. And so I told him, I think you're more of a behind the scenes guy. And we moved him to a different ministry back cleaning the stalls somewhere. Some of you are upfront guys. Some of you are behind the scenes guys. Some of you are sort of in between. Some of you are leaders. Some of you are more followers. But we, we are seeking to be are men who are like this man who are respected. He's a man who's known at the gates. Now, in context, he's known because of his wife, but he's also known because he has developed a positive reputation. And I, I think that the concept of reputation, I, I feel as though from trying to keep my finger on the pulse of our culture, I feel that that's not addressed today, especially with young men. What is a reputation? Here's a definition of a reputation. It's what those who know you expect you to do based on what you've done. It's what those who know you expect you to do based on what you've done. If you're always late, what do they expect you to be? Late. If you're always on time, they expect you to be punctual. And those little things reflect, uh, come out into big things. I've talked to many men who do hiring, either for a company they work for or for their own company and so forth. And invariably, they'll say that when they're interviewing people, it's not just the content of the interview, it's, it's other little things that impact them. How was he dressed? How did he smell? Was he five minutes late? Was he five minutes early? Those little things tell him what the reputation of this person is because what he did right now probably reflects what he has done in the past and what he will do in the future. That's a reputation. You earn it. A reputation is not like grace. Grace is completely unearned. Your reputation, on the other hand, you have completely earned it, whatever it is. But this man has a reputation that his family life is together. His life is responsibly managed such that he can counsel others as well. And I want to just take a moment. Let's go back to the New Testament for a second. I just want to talk about reputation in Titus chapter 1. In Titus 1, not all men are called to be elders, but the qualification of elders, it's a, it's a glorious set of marks to aim for. It's a good reputation to look at. And just to make you aware of this, Titus chapter 1, beginning of verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, what does that mean? He has a reputation where nobody can, can accuse him of anything. He's the husband of one wife. He's a devoted family man. His children are believers. Better word, his children are faithful, meaning they're obedient, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. In other words, he's not, he's not a guy that, can, that has a shady side to him. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. There it is again. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, or a drunkard. There it is, all the way from uh, Proverbs 31, verses 4 through 7. Or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, meaning that he loves those who are less than lovable sometimes. A lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. These are worthy goals to set for yourself. If you're going to study anything as a man, I'm becoming a man of character. This is it. You go through these. Uh, years ago, Dr. Gene Getz wrote a, a wonderful book. Um, I think it's called The Mark of a Man or The Marks of a Man. I can't remember which, but look at that. The Measure of a Man. Thank you. Yeah, uh, The Mark of a Man. That was uh, Elizabeth Elliot. But The Measure of a Man, it's just chapter by chapter on these qualities. Wonderful goal to develop that reputation. Godly man from Proverbs 31 has a good reputation. Here's a fourth quality back in Proverbs 31. He is a goal-setting man. He is a goal-setting man. He sets goals. And can I, can I say this? We have, uh, I don't know who the youngest guy here is, and I don't know who the oldest guy is, and I won't ask for either one. Many of you are in different stages of life. There is never a stage of life in which setting goals is now past you or is now beyond you. 
Uh, Darren Weeb's dear mother just went home to be with the Lord early yesterday morning. And when she went into hospice care where she was going to die, she told Darren, my goal is to do this well. That was her goal. There is never a stage in life uh, if you are financially retired, meaning that you don't have to work for a living, um, that doesn't mean that you stop setting goals. And, um, and statistically, guys who do that die sooner too because we're built to set goals. But he's a goal-setting man. Now, where do we get this? Verse 11, the heart of her husband trusts in her. He'll have no lack of gain. This implies a, a team approach to the family where the husband is fully aware of the activities of his wife and in all likelihood, her activities are being directed by him. Verse 15, she rises while it's night. She provides food. She provides portions or instructions for her maidens. She manages in the style that a wife of a goal-directed man would manage, would, would inspire. Verse 18, again, her lamp does not go out at night. Family time is important. She's made a way to enjoy the lamps that don't go out. The last qualification of an elder that I listed, that we listed in Titus 1 was disciplined. Disciplined. And this means to exercise mastery or lordship. If I could put it this way, because it lists self-control and disciplined. Self-control is making the right decision right now at this moment. Disciplined is making the right decisions and plans over a long period of time. Does that make sense? You put together a lot of self-controlled moments and now you're living a disciplined life. It means to be master of your life. This is a man who can make a plan and who can execute that plan. And I think this is so important for us, guys. We are never called by God to coast. We're never called by God to do that, to just work or earn a paycheck or come home. That's not living. That's coasting. Years ago, I worked for a a home for severely abused and even some criminal uh, children They'd been removed from their homes by the state uh, for various reasons, and the goal was to get them through this program to either return them home or to get them ready for foster care. And behaviorally, none of them could handle that. They were, they were just kids with such severe issues. We had a very simple system. It was called our goals and objectives system. And a goal was an abstract concept that we were shooting for, and the objectives were the concrete measurable steps to achieve that goal. This is such a brilliant and yet a simple concept. I'll give you an example. A goal, something abstract, Johnny will learn the basics of personal hygiene. That's an that's a abstract goal. The objectives, though, Johnny will brush his teeth daily for one month, Johnny will shower every other day, and Johnny will get a sniff test from the staff member before going to school. That's from an actual treatment plan that we did. So the goal, abstract, what I want to accomplish, the objectives, here's how I'm going to get there. And you can do the same thing. And I would say as a man, if you're not doing that in areas of your life, then you're not being the man that is behind or in front of this Proverbs 31 woman. And just some diagnostic questions you could ask yourself. As an example, have you set goals for your marriage? If you're not setting goals for your marriage, you'll achieve them. Nothing. What are the objectives that could help you attain these goals? I'll give you an example. One goal, spend more time together. Okay, great. What are the objectives to do that? Meet with your calendars to discuss it. Rearrange A, B, and C to make this happen. Figure out how many more hours a week you want together and make it happen. That's how you do objectives. Another diagnostic question. Have you set goals for your walk with the Lord? I'll give you an example goal. Take advantage of discipleship opportunities. Okay, what are the objectives? I will take and review notes for the next 12 sermons that I hear this in, in the next two months. I'm going to do this. That's an objective that helps you meet that goal. Have you set goals for inputting into the lives of your children or your grandchildren? Have you set goals uh, for your work situation? If, you're, if your work situation is unlivable or you can't, you can't make ends meet on it, then what's your plan to proactively and prayerfully work through that? We are goal setters if you're going to be a Proverbs 31 man. One more. One more quality most important one. This is a spiritually stable man. This is a spiritually stable man. Verse 25. Strength and dignity are her clothing and she laughs at the time to come. This is a strong woman who trusts the Lord and she sees a husband who trusts the Lord. Now, how do I know this? 
Well, verse 23 has already told us her husband has been deemed as one who is spiritually wise, who is spiritually capable. He has answers. When people ask him questions, he has answers to those questions. He's among the elders of the town. This isn't a woman who has to be strong in the Lord despite her husband, but who's strong in the Lord because of the inspiration of her husband and the example from her. And what do I mean by being spiritually stable? It means that you're a guy who doesn't panic every time something bad happens. That, you're, that, that, that you don't come home and sit in the corner and start sucking your thumb and rocking. That when your wife is looking to you, and if you're married, you have seen this look. When your wife is looking to you for something that says, make me feel secure right now. That you don't go, oh no, I don't know what I'm going to do. We've got to do something about this. But you're the guy who says, I don't have an answer right now, but I know the Lord does, and we're going to pray, and we're going to make it through this. God is going to help us. What does your wife do? She is strong because he is strong. He doesn't panic. And he says, you know, I I think I'm going to just go for a walk and really think about this. And he looks back, and she's back inside, and she can't see him anymore. Now he goes, oh, what am I going to do about this? If I could put it this way, Panic by yourself or with some other men. You do it with the Lord, he'll say, I'll give you answers. Do it with some other men. We'll hug you and then kind of, you know, come on, guys, step it up. You go to your wife and you say, the Lord's going to help us through this. You always present the front of confidence to her. You be the spiritually stable one. And yes, we have moments of panic, but don't do that in front of her because she'll just follow right along. But my question to you is, what are you doing to seriously nourish your soul spiritually? I mean, at Grace Bible Church, I'm so thankful that, um, I was joking with Chad, when women do events, they all sign up and they all talk about it. When we do this, like three of you signed up to come, but 50 of you came. That's typical. But I praise God that you're here because you want to have your soul nourished and you want to be here. What are you doing though to get ahead? What are you doing? What, what are you saving spiritually? Um, Jason, our uh, truck driver friend here, he couldn't be here today. He's on the road. Jason, are you here? You're not here. You're on the road. He told me on Sunday, Sunday night, his truck is parked out there. He's getting ready to go off on the road for a week again. And I said, how's your marriage holding up? How's, how are you doing? He said, oh, we're doing great. We're doing fabulously. When we have time together, it's so sweet and tender. And I said, well, how is it that you're staying strong? He said, are you kidding? I'm on the road. I listen to like eight sermons a day. And spiritually, he is just, he's like Rocky Balboa right now because he is nourishing himself constantly. And so if you're, you know, it's like anything else. If you're malnourished, that's on you. If you're malnourished at Grace Bible Church, that's like going to hotels and staring at the buffet. Just pick up a plate. Are you developing into the man who is the spiritual rock in your family? That's who you ought to be. So, behind the scenes principles. The man this woman is married to is an earning man, a giving man, a respected man, a goal-setting man, a spiritually stable man. That's the type of man in front of a Proverbs 31 woman. Do you see the value of this chapter to inspire you to be worthy of that woman? And can I tell you this? If you will be that man, your wife has a greater likelihood of aspiring to be that woman. Don't wait for her. Don't make her ever say, I'm aspiring to be a Proverbs 31 woman despite what you're doing. Oh, you'll never live that down. Be that man. That's the type of man in front of her. Well, let me pray for you. And then, Chad, do you have any closing comments you want to do? All right, let me pray for you. Our Father, we, we don't believe for a moment that being a spiritual man just has to do with going to church and doing churchy things and, and separating somehow that false dichotomy of secular and sacred. Our entire lives are sacred before you. Our entire lives are holy before you. We are to be holy. We are to be sanctified. We're called in Scripture the saints, the set-apart ones. And so I pray for these men. I pray for those who need to be more diligent to set goals. I pray for those who need to be more diligent to lead their wives spiritually just by setting an example of being spiritually stable and spiritually strong and consistent. I pray for our guys to be giving and generous and that their their time and their checkbooks would reflect this. 
I pray for our guys to be those who are who are earners. And I know that in our economy and our our culture, sometimes that's easier said than done. So I pray for those who are struggling in that area right now, Lord. Give them opportunity. Give them gumption and motivation. And that as they pray and as they beg you for the opportunity to work and to work hard, that you would give them uh, what they need. I know every man here is in a different situation and I pray that something that was said this morning would be useful and would make us just a little bit more like Christ who the, the irony being that he never married while on this earth that was, that was not part of his purpose at all was nowhere near it but he is the husband to a bride that is the church and he has been and is and continues on as the perfect example of a man of God who does all that is pleasing to you And I pray that he would stand as our example, that he, the one who so graciously died on the cross to pay for our sin so that we could become men that are pleasing to you by his grace. It's in his name that we thank you. Amen.